today on Against the Grain. What are the contradictions and uses of environmental conservation, species reintroduction, and land preservation in a settler colonial state? Like South Africa and the United States, the Israeli government has carved out large swaths of land for ecological protection, and the dispossession of native populations is often hidden from sight. Legal anthropologist Irus Braberman discusses the settler ecologies of Palestine-Israel. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Israel is much lauded and celebrates itself as a place of natural conservation. 25% of Israel-Palestine is designated as a nature reserve or park. Yet, as my guest today argues, Israel's nature management can't be seen separately from that state's settler colonial project whether through the designation of nature enclosures and wildlife protection, both in the occupied territories and in the area demarcated as Israel proper, and the alienation of certain humans from certain animals. Anthropologist Iruz Braverman has spent much of her career writing about the intersection of nature and politics in the land of Palestine. She's professor of law at the University at Buffalo. Her books include Planted Flags, Trees, Land, and Law, Coral Whisperers, Scientists on the Brink, and Zooland. In her latest book, Settling Nature, the Conservation Regime in Palestine-Israel, which is published by the University of Minnesota Press, she argues that Israeli conservation and environmental policies have been entwined from their inception with the politics of the settler state, whether through land dispossession and control, the reintroduction of biblical species, or the ways that nature and ecological preservation are used to bolster feelings of Israeli nationalism and militarism. Let me begin with this question, Yerus. How important is the area of Israel-Palestine, or Palestine-Israel, however we might want to term it, for biodiversity? This area, this region, as I call it in the book, Palestine-Israel, more often I guess you hear Israel-Palestine, but for historical reasons as well as for the emphasis that I have in this project, I refer to it as um, Palestine-Israel rather than slash. Um, Anyway, to your question, the biodiversity is a really important factor here because the region is situated in very uh, unique interface between Europe, Asia, and Africa. So this means that there's a convergence uh, of a lot of species in this area. Also, it's highly important for bird migration with half a billion uh, migratory birds passing through this region, through the African Syrian fault, um, passing up and down um, twice a year, basically. So biodiversity uh, is very high in this region, uh, but however, it's also uh, in a decline as it is elsewhere in the world. But but here it's 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 uh, highly pronounced with a huge decline in mammal species. Of uh, I believe it's fifty percent of reptiles, thirty percent of birds, twenty percent uh, local birds, and so we're seeing the situation where conserva- conservation is uh, an urgent matter. And so my book is basically. Um, basically speaks to this urgent moment and um, and appreciates the importance of conservation in this context. Because of this importance, it's even more important to highlight some of the, let's say, social issues that are so important for successful conservation to take place. And I think that my book tries to bring those to the fore um, and tries to, in that way, strengthen Uh, the project of conservation in Palestine-Israel and not undermine it. We'll talk uh, much more about the ecological state of Palestine-Israel, but I wanted to ask you about 
nature conservation as it has been shaped, uh, especially in the West. Nature conservation has deep roots in colonialism well before the state of Israel was formed. Can you describe the connection between nature protection and colonialism in the West? Well, that's a massive question um, that requires probably quite a few books. And in fact, there have been a few books that have looked into it, perhaps less than one would desire. Um, but yeah, I would say that there is a colonial underpinning um, to a lot of conservation thinking and as a science as well. And possibly the most important, I would say, problematic conceptual arrangement that underlies uh, uh, ecological thinking is the juxtaposition between nature and humans. So this idea that nature in its purest sense does not, does not have humans in this uh, kind of uh, exclusion of humans from the natural realm and turning it into a site of wilderness. And, and this um, underpins a lot of what we see as environmental laws, for example, the Wilderness Act, uh, untrammeled by humans, the 1964 American um, Wilderness Act. But, but, but that's not the only manifestation of that idea, this separation between nature and culture. So where we see national parks is where humans should not dwell. And um, as some historians have pointed out, in many instances, um, that kind of wilderness had to be made um, by humans in order to exist as such a in such a supposedly pure existence. So it doesn't really exist in nature uh, because, as some have pointed out, there's always elements of culture in nature or what some call nature culture together. So that separation um, has resulted in a lot of uh, tragedies for local and indigenous communities uh, worldwide in various colonial settings. This idea that when you come to a place and maybe if there are humans there, they are either part of nature, they are the natives, they are just part of that landscape and thus they can be disregarded as part of that nature. Um, they're like, like the animals or, um, or they have to be excluded from that nature in order for the nature to exist. So I, I, I kind of follow that juxtaposition between nature and culture uh, throughout the book and weave stories about how that colonial way of thinking has performed and has manifested itself in the Palestine-Israel context. And I can give you examples if you'd like. And how did the early Zionist project view nature non-human nature, that is, and the land that it was intent on colonizing. Well, is there such a thing, non-human nature, is exactly kind of the question that, you know, that I ask. And I, I work on that a lot in other book projects. Um, and so they play into this story, right? Because that separation between humans and nature, I would argue, is very problematic and can be challenged. But the Zionist project is really interesting because it does have its roots in a lot of European thinking and in that kind of thinking of the 19th century of progress and um, production and advancement of the land as part of this kind of, uh, again, productive scheme. And so when the early Zionists came to uh, this region, um, they usually kind of saw it as a land to be conquered and to be um, to be utilized in a kind of utilitarian fashion. So uh, the swamps had to be dried so there would not be malaria, and and uh, so wetlands were um, were basically destroyed, and. Um, and deserts planted with pine trees to look like the European uh, forests that these uh, uh, early Zionists were familiar with and to green the desolate landscape. So it seemed to those newcomers as a, a, bit, a place of desolation that needs to be fixed into the imaginary of the land of milk and honey that they expected to find when they came to the biblical land. That was kind of the approach in the early days to the point of, well, it's a bit anecdotal, but um, Herzl, who's considered sometimes the founder of the Zionist ideology, 
basically wrote that like all the wild animals should be uh, should be uh, exploded with a bomb or something like that for <laughs> so that you can kind of take over so humans can make use of the land and um, at that at a certain point there was a bit of a divergence um, and a bit of a wake up by the early environmentalists uh, in the 1950s 1960s who called uh, for protection and then this is kind of the, the beginning of the environmental movement in the area who called for protection of the wetland of the Hula Valley up in the north in the Galilee region and that's kind of how uh, the environmental movement started um, hunting laws uh, wildlife protection acts and so on the one hand Israel was paving with concrete massive areas um, and on the other hand, there started to be very strong environmental regulations, possibly the strongest in the world those days, uh, like the Wild Animal Protection Act of 1955. Well, tell us more about that. What were the origins of the Israel Nature and Parks Authority, or INPA, which has played a really crucial role in the story of Zionism and nature protection? So the Israel Nature and Parks Authority is the central government um, agency that uh, works on protecting parks, protecting species in the state of Israel. So it's a government agency. I am a legal anthropologist, and what I've done in this project for the last, I would say, at least a decade, but in fact it goes back, way back before then, because... I worked with this agency when I was an environmental lawyer still living in Israel and um, worked against a different agency in a petition against the afforestation projects, which turned to be my doctorate and my first book in English, Planted Flags. And so this agency is the central agency that I have been in conversation with uh, about the... about conservation management in the region. It's not the only one. There's uh, plenty of other organizations. There's also an environmental protection agency or ministry in Israel. But like, um, but INPA, as I call them, the Israel Nature and Protection Authority, is the, is the agency that really uh, intimately, closely, and exclusively is authorized to manage national parks, nature reserves, and the protection of species with all the laws that, um, that deal with that in the Israeli laws. So those were my main interlocutors for the project. I went back many times, spoke with a lot of the people who work there in various departments, um, and it's kind of the agency, the central agency that is on display in a way in the book. Now this agency has um, has had its own you know evolution or genealogy as an institution and it started off um, as with a different name and it also started off as two separate agencies one managing uh, national parks and the other managing nature reserves and maybe I should pause here to say that nature reserves are kind of more like what Americans uh, refer to as national parks uh, those kind of so-called wilderness areas, uh, untrammeled, right? So this is kind of when, when people think about Yellowstone or Yosemite or um, areas like that. A lot of the nature reserves in Israel are more like that. Whereas the national parks, there are usually um, a little bit more intensely managed for more human visitation. And so that's that was the um, split the, and it was an, uh, an institutional split for, I would say, three decades or so between two agencies, but finally they merged into the Israel Nature Protection Authority. I think that was pretty late, maybe in the 1990s, when they actually merged under one law to run both projects, both the nature reserves uh, and the national parks. And um, or in the occupied territories, they're just called parks, not national parks. But the Israel Nature Protection Authority is also very present in the occupied Palestinian territories. However, there they work through the military administration that operates in the occupied territories. 
Ruth Braverman is my guest. She's professor of law at the University of Buffalo, and we're discussing her book, Settling Nature, the Conservation Regime in Palestine, Israel. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So, Ruth, you write that there are two parts of Israel's settler colonial orientation toward nature. There's the protection of land, which you've just been discussing, designated by the settler state as nature reserve or national park. And there's also the protection of various species. Let's start with the first. How has Israel marked out land for nature reserves or for parks? And what have been the consequences of that demarcation or designation of land? That's a great question. So yeah, my central argument, and I think what's, uh, what has been really challenging for me to bring together is that the project of what I call settler ecologies works through both on the one hand, um, working through territory, and I, I like to call it enclosure because this is how, in a way, the state kind of um, puts a boundary around an area and says, this is protected. And we'll get to, okay, so what does that mean? But that's the one aspect of this um, ecological um, underpinning, like what I call ecological um, warfare later. Um, and then the other, or settler, settler ecologies. Um, and then the other aspect is the protection of um, of bodies, so mostly animal and plant bodies, but those are more transient, and um, and so the nature of that kind of protection is a bit different than the protection of land and water, water in terms of like springs, for example, or or water bodies. So, so bringing those two together was uh, under one roof, and seeing them as as elements in settler ecologies in a settler colonial project was I feel like whoa to harness both together was a a kind of a bit of a leap (laughs) because usually conservationists think about one or the other and and here what I was saying is that yes it happens uh, we are more used to thinking about national parks and protection areas but we're not so much used to thinking about animals and plants as proxies of a political, and in this example, settler colonial project. So as participants in this warfare, yeah, we're more accustomed to saying, okay, dispossession of land, and this is kind of what the first part of the story that I'm telling uh, is about. So you've asked about that, so I'll, I'll say a little bit about that kind of designation of land as a national park and nature reserve. So let's start with the fact that um, 93% of land in Israel here is publicly owned. So those areas that have private land, they are a minority of areas and they're usually in the periphery. A lot of them uh, by Palestinians, including Druze and Bedouins. Uh, Now, when an area, uh, usually in the periphery and not in the center of cities, usually is designated as a national park or a nature reserve, that means that the usage, the uses that people can put in that place change, right? They're not going to suddenly build a, a high rise in somewhere that was declared. They're not allowed to, to do that for the most part in a nature reserve or a national park. So if somebody does own pr- private land in an area that is now designated by the state, um, then they cannot use it in the same way that they would have pro- possibly been able to use it if it was a different kind of, under a different zoning category. And so it takes away from their ability to, uh, from, from their freedom to do whatever they want on that land. However, usually they're not eligible for compensation for that uh, different use. Because the idea is, well, for the most part, uh, they can continue, but they cannot change uh, some of the practices from before. So the first nature reserve that the book focuses on is the Meron Nature Reserve up in the northern part of, uh, of the region of, of in the Galilee. And this was uh, the first nature reserve declared uh, by INPA in 1964. And that's a, a large nature reserve. And 20% of it was uh, designated uh, as a reserve, despite the fact that it is privately owned by a non-Jewish group, 
um, called the Druze, D-R-U-Z-E. And as it happens, it encircles their village. And so basically now they cannot develop, newly develop into that area. So on the one hand, yes, this, uh, this is a really important habitat and ecosystem. On the other hand, there are the needs and the rights of these people who feel like now they cannot build in their own private lands anymore. And in fact, there are, there's a police entity, it's called the Green Patrol. In Hebrew, it's such a military, there's such a military connotation for the name. And in fact, yeah, a lot of non-Jews are really afraid of this, of this unit. It's a paramilitary unit and it enforces those land laws to, to the letter, you know. So yes, this is, this is enforced. They cannot build, they cannot. So there are negotiations, especially in, um, in that area with the Druze community, which is a unique uh, community in its relationship to the Israeli state, especially because they also go and serve in the army, in the military. And so it's very interesting how um, that relationship manifests uh, through the relationship with uh, with the nature reserve, but a lot of clashes uh, between the state and the Druze around the designation and the continued protection of this nature reserve. So it's ongoing. This is not something that happened in the past, and we're talking about some historical um, story. This is ongoing. So yeah, national parks and nature reserves constitute 25% of the land mass in this region. 25% is a huge percentage. And I'm talking about uh, on the land, actually, there's really interesting developments in the ocean, in the Mediterranean Sea in particular. Iris Braverman is my guest. She is the author of Settling Nature, the Conservation Regime in Palestine, Israel. That's published by the University of Minnesota Press and at againstthegrain.org. You can find a link to that book. She teaches law at the University of Buffalo. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So one of the things that's very striking about the story of Israel's ecological management in Palestine, Israel, and the complicated politics around it is a history of trying to restore landscapes, including urban landscapes, to some notion of what things appeared like in biblical times and reintroducing biblical animals into the region. Can you tell us about that thrust? When did it start and how has it unfolded? Yes, so it's interesting how uh, the idea, the, this idea of conservation, which is in very much all over uh, the world in kind of mainstream conservation of what's called reintroduction, manifests here um, because the idea of reintroduction, which is this way of bringing back animals that have uh, become extirpated or extinct in an area. So, uh, so this is the conservation jargon, right? But basically, okay, they were here until, say, 100 years ago or so, not too far back, but now we're going to return them in order to recover some of the ecosystem functions. But here in this region, uh, there's an additional factor, and that is that those animals are also that have become extinct or extirpated, meaning they don't exist anymore in this particular region, are also um, very much desirable when they are mentioned in the Bible. So there's this additional PR factor of, okay, let's bring the biblical animals back, turning the, restoring the landscape into, again, this land of milk and honey, this imaginary of this biblical menagerie. And the first uh, advocates of the uh, of bringing back the biblical animals w uh, was a military general that uh, after he retired from the military became the first uh, director of the Israel Nature and Protection Authority was the director for 18 years as it happens he was also a hunter in the early days when when that was still allowed and he wanted to bring back some of these huntable animals some of these large 
uh, deer species, etc., to the landscape that uh, he felt was uh, lacking of animals, was almost like empty of those biblical animals, and then started a few projects, some of them, uh, again, really important in conservation terms. So conservationists will come from all over the world to see some of the successful um, reintroduction projects that are done in this region. So they have an importance con from um, a conservation perspective. And here they've got that extra uh, nostalgia, maybe I'll, I'll use that word, uh, as bringing, like turning the landscape into something that, uh, that bridges between the current day Zionist project and the Jewish past, the biblical past of 3,000 years ago. So I trace probably at least three major stories about such animals. Uh, the first animal I work, I work on through the book, telling the story, the first species is the fallow deer, one of the rarest deer species in the world, thought to have been extinct, but then found in Iran in the 1950s, just two dozen. Uh, individuals and then shipped to Israel in the last flight from Tehran in 1978 to start the captive breeding uh, group but unfortunately all females they had to find a couple males in uh, a zoo in Germany and bring them to Israel that's the six founders of this population of fallow deer started this whole project that now counts about 300 individuals and um, includes populations in captive breeding, still being reintroduced annually. And I attended some of these reintroductions and I tell the story of, of the efforts into recovering this population um, in, in the region and, and making the fallow deer be part of the landscape. So it's very interesting then to see um, how, uh, uh, how to deal with the local population, with hunting issues, uh, criminalizing hunting by uh, by local groups and especially by Palestinians and how that impacts the relationship between the state and the Palestinian communities in the region. So that was that's one example. The other one is is the Asian um, wild ass. It's a uh, this one again is a species that uh, was extra extirpated in the region was brought from Iran. And here their populations are exploding so much that the Israeli farmers in the Nakab in the southern part of Israel, the Nakab or the Negev Desert, have actually uh, been, been asking to limit the population, to stop the reintroductions. After five years, the reintroductions actually stopped because they've been proliferating. And what's really interesting about the, um, the uh, wild ass story is something that I go into in depth in the book as a, 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 a central characteristic of what I call settler ecologies. And that is the warring between, not just between the humans in this space, i.e. Is, Israeli Jews versus, say, Palestinians, but also between the animals that are affiliated with these human groups. So here, the Asian wild ass is affiliated with the Zionist conservationists and protected as such, and um, and is, almost set at war with, uh, with the camel, which is affiliated with the pastoral Bedouin communities dwelling in the area that the Asian wild ass was reintroduced into. And I think for me, it was fascinating to follow the protocols and the discussion in a criminal court case against a Bedouin camel and the Bedouin camel owner. Um, who allowed his camel to go and graze and drink water in the mountain Negev reserve. Uh, and that water was intended for the Asian wild ass. And, um, and so the camel is not allowed to go and drink the water inside the nature reserve because it's considered a non-wild animal. So that is where it plays out this, again, this, what, what I see as a problematic separation between nature and culture, in this instance, the wild ass represents wild, the wild animal, and the camel represents basically a domestic animal. And so it's not protected by nature laws. And why should the state give water and food to that camel is, was the question.
So you see here how the same juxtaposition between nature and culture manifests into, okay, uh, juxtaposition between the wild uh, animal and the domestic animal, whereas the domestic one that are affiliated with the Bedouin is not allowed, is not allowed access to the state resources. Right, so in a sense, these animals and also plants become proxies. Some are proxies for the settlers and some become proxies for the occupied. Yes, for the settlers. And when I say settlers, I mean writ large, the Israeli Jewish community. This is a bit of a different usage than I think in in the media that we usually hear settlers as those who live in the occupied territories. And here, because I'm, I'm, take, I'm using the settler colonial framework to frame uh, the relationship, because of that, I see the entire population, including myself, I should add, uh, as a settler Jew. Okay, I came here I, um, in a Zionist European project to settle this space vis-a-vis um, -vis, uh, the Palestinian indigenous groups. And so, um, so this framework is not necessarily obvious, right, to a lot of Israelis. And one of the important things is that it shows the project as one uniform project that exists both in Israel that is acknowledged um, by the international community, what's called the 1948 and the 1948 boundaries. So so Israel within the Green Line, but and Israel of the occupied territories, the Palestinian occupied territories. So the problem, I argue here, of uh, some of, of these acts of dispossession through nature, settlement and dispossession, not just dispossession, but also restoration and settlement by the Jews, dispossession of Palestinian, settlement by the Jews, it happens not only in the occupied Palestinian territories, but also in 1948 Israel. So this entire space is a settler colonial, under a, one settler colonial regime, not exactly the same legal regime. So I go into, yes, there are differences between the military regime practiced in the occupied territory and the one in 1948 Israel. And of course, there are many differences, but I see it as one project and, and I see the slippages between these two spaces and how they're managed, how they impact one another, how the violences or the travel from one space to the other through administrators who themselves travel from administering and governing and managing one nature reserve to, uh, to doing the same in the occupied uh, West Bank occupied Jerusalem. Well, of course, Israel doesn't call it occupied. It annexed it in 1980. So basically, just to say that that's kind of the settler colonial project enables me to see it as a one conservation regime across the area. The importance of the project is that it also highlights some of the elements of the political relationships beyond nature. But because usually we don't look at nature as political, this is a really important lens that suddenly you see how the landscape and the ecologies and so many other factors that are usually not seen as political factors are recruited for the human warfare that happens here. Irus Braverman is my guest. We're talking about settling nature, the conservation regime in Palestine, Israel. I'm Sasha Lilly. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So bearing in mind what you just said, which is that when you're talking about dispossession, you're not just talking about dispossession in the so-called occupied territories, but of the whole region of Palestine, Israel. And that what seems like a benign project of nature preservation has very much been in the service of continued dispossession of the Palestinian and other populations by the settler colonial state. So bearing in mind that you're, you're not just talking about the so-called occupied territories, can you tell us about how the Israeli army positions itself as an ecological defender despite being the largest polluter in the country? Yeah, um, specifically the griffin vulture and other um, and other raptors and and birds and so uh, the stories are are almost fantastical. Like they're just like you follow the story and suddenly you realize some of the meanings uh, that are 
that are assigned to these animals and plants and, and how they become indeed uh, proxies, but, but also how they uh, are these, become these national <laughs> entities, um, totemic as, uh, as uh, some, some call them, and I kind of use that terminology here too. But I, I will say that I'm not claiming that all of nature protection is always done with the one uh, exclusive intent of dispossessing Palestinians. I mean, that would be a little too simplistic. There are a lot of projects uh, to contend with here. Plus, you know, I myself, as I mentioned, was an environmental lawyer. I work in conservation. I care about conservation uh, goals. And um, but I, I will say that the political element of the conservation project uh, is unfortunately usually neglected and overlooked. And this is what my project is trying to shed light on. And whenever I used to talk about this project, even when I just spoke about it in South Africa, people would come up to me and say, wow, suddenly things that we kind of didn't realize were political, suddenly it's so clear to us. Like I had people from Zimbabwe come to me and say that that was like their eyes were open to some um, aspects that they didn't consider to be uh, important, but it suddenly shed light on it. So coming back to your question about the military. So the military, like a lot of militaries, does a lot of pollution, you know, um, actually is exempt from some of the environmental laws or a lot of the environmental laws in the country. And even the official, um, official reports in Israel have commented about the problems of military and pollution by the military, by tanks and massive training. The military is a very strong entity in Israel, as probably many know, right? And 50% um, of, uh, of uh, lands that were designated as parks and reserves are also at the same time also military training zones. And so there's that convergence of nature protection and military that is very strong. And it's interesting because, of course, those areas where you can train are also usually not the urban areas. So they're the same Palestine-Israel, pretty small space. So those, those areas in the periphery are are usually used both for military purposes and, again, are designated for um, for nature protection. And those are the areas that there are less humans in. And in a way, that's kind of sometimes uh, uh, nature protection officials will say, yeah, well, in a way, military protection zones kind of protect the area from development by humans. And we've seen that in a lot of other areas in the world, right, where uh, military closed military zones are places where wildlife will thrive. And, um, and we, we've seen movement from military to wildlife, say in, in Puerto Rico and in other areas. It's even, there's even a whole literature called M2W, military to wildlife. This kind of how military lands turn into wildlife. But here we're seeing into wildlife zones. But here we're seeing it happen at the same time. Um, military uh, areas, are at the same time also nature reserves, which means that sometimes that um, that idea that the priority is the military training is not something that necessarily does well for protection of habitats and ecosystems and does end in um, fires uh, during training times in very important and sensitive ecosystems. And so, yeah, the same entity that is seen as um, polluting and damaging is also at the same time uh, the one seen as protecting. And in fact, for uh, the last few decades, the Israeli military has taken, as some call it IDF, I kind of uh, decide not to call it that in the book because I see the Israel what's called defense forces is not defending, um, but, but doing other things as well. Um, and so I call it the Israeli military. People always ask me, so why, why don't you call it the ADF? So I'm just explaining it here. Um, so the Israeli military has taken upon itself to also protect a lot of species, also nature protection um, projects. And some see it as a form of kind of what you can call green colonialism, but um, the way I, I've seen it after kind of working and interviewing and, 
in discussing it with a few, uh, with a, with uh, many officials, is that it's not just kind of a, a greenwashing action, but it's actually a way to strengthen the connection between the soldier and the need to protect the land and the landscape. And so I, I trace the story of, of uh, the griffin vulture, and it kind of, I open it with this mission of trying to save a griffin vulture chick with a secretive technology developed um, by a high-tech company with collab for the army, with collaboration by the army, and how the army does this training in order to feed the chick because his mother has just died. And so I start that last chapter of my book with that story and ask, so why is the military so involved in conservation? And I end the book with this, or, or, or th this chapter, with this story about, yes, we're speaking about not really just nature conservation. We're speaking about belonging, belonging to uh, the state and fighting for the state, being willing to lose one's life for the state. So you have been saying that you're not arguing that ecological systems aren't under duress, including in Palestine, Israel, that, that there's not a need to do ecological preservation. And yet you're also been illustrating how the Israeli state has used ecological protection and preservation as a way to further dispossess the Palestinian people. Do you feel like there's any way that there could be the protection of nature in this context that's free of the colonial project or given the configuration of power in the region that one is inevitably tied to the other? Uh, that is a really excellent question and something that I've debated a lot about. In fact, I think I changed the ending of the book <laughs> so many times that I can't even count. Because the title of the book is Settling Nature, right? You know, in some, some instances, I just found myself so depressed because I would be recording stories. And now it took about, it took more than a decade, over a decade to write it. But whenever I would, and I was continuing to be in touch with the people that, I'm, that I work with and continuing to hear stories, and they just seem to be almost repetitions of the same patterns of the warfare, of the juxtaposition, of the violence that I felt were so tragic. Tragic because they harmed um, both humans, human communities, I believe all community, human communities. So I believe that these Israeli Jews are also suffering from this from, as a result of, 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 of these forms of violence. Um, and I can give examples for that, you know, how the ecological thinking uh, sometimes actually goes to damage uh, the ecological state, say the project of exterminating the goats that was massive. And I've, I, I worked with a chief scientist who really took it upon herself uh, to, to get rid of the black goat because it was bad for the environment. That was the idea. It was eating the, uh, the young, the, the young, uh, forest and um, and uh, and destroying diversity and it was hated by the British and then by the Zionists, but not too long ago they realized well the goat is actually doing us a service of of managing um, managing the forests for for. For, 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 wild, for fire and here we are without the goats and with massive fires and so how do we reintroduce the goat to the region and so coming back and realizing the mistakes of the early ecological state uh, a few really massive mistakes right that now ecologists are realizing so coming back to your question so right I'm focusing on the settler project and that project sometimes felt so sad to me because of the violence to humans and to non-humans, right? So you see the violence also inflicted upon uh, the various group of groups of animals, including wild animals. Um, so everybody suffers from these violences and the slippages between the human and animal violences. And that's the project I'm documenting, the settler project. And in some instances, I really wanted a way out of the tragic violence that plays out and continues to play out. And almost, I was writing the conclusion and I remember saying, I just feel like the story 
is not ending. As I'm writing this, it, it continues to unravel in other examples of, of war between one animal and the other played out by the different sides and the different interests. And I wanted to, to have something to strive for, to, to work toward, you know, and the unsettling of, nat of nature, right? Like, so if my project is, is documenting the settling uh, project of, 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 of the conservation regime, I wanted to, to hint toward an, a possibility of unsettling, unsettling this structure. So to move beyond it is yes, I do believe that there can be conservation beyond colonialism. Otherwise, I think I would not have written this book. I really hope that conservationists in the region and other in other places, because the stories do share a lot in common with many other political geographies. In the United States, where I'm actually working with the United States National Parks Authority, in in other settler colonial contexts, such as Australia, New Zealand, and so many other places, right? Because we have that uh, in so many other regions in the world. So I think that there's um, a seed here of once there is recognition of those legacies and realization of the violence that this way of thinking causes, then there can be, then we can find a way to start moving beyond it. But there needs to, first of all, be a recognition. Uh, coming to terms with that legacy. So let me end by then asking you how you would assess, even by the narrow metrics of the Zionist ecological project, how successful has the Israeli state been at slowing or stopping the rate of extinction and dislocation of species? You see, I'm very generally, I work on on the political aspect of conservation, and I criticize more broadly sometimes the focus on extinction and on those species that are on the brink, right? Rather than sometimes putting and dedicating much more to uh, protecting habitats and species that are not there, and perhaps <laughs> there's more hope in so the whole what I call biopolitical regime of conservation, this whole prioritization that happens, why do we prefer to try to put so much effort in saving the northern white rhino when there were like five left? You know, is, is, does that, does like just being aware of some of the assumptions of what is important and what isn't important, that's part of what I work on more broadly. Um, like, uh, how do we make those decisions? Are there those decisions made democratically? Should they be? Or is it something that conservation managers just decide this animal is going to live? This animal, we're going to either let die or make die because in some instances they're declared as problem species or as invasive or as, so they are in fact called. So the conservation um, as a project really intensely has to deal with these uh, life and death decisions. Um, and, and I feel it's a fascinating decision-making process, important one that we should all know about and be involved in. And so when you're asking me, so has Israel been successful? The question is really what your parameters are. Did it succeed to bring back the fallow deer from being extirpated in the region? Yes, there are now 300 fallow deer roaming the region. Like, how important is that when in a region that is becoming more and more populated with um, with humans that is uh, uh, you know suffering from higher and higher pollution, climate change? You know how so so in the larger uh, context, like how do we how do we assess that success? Uh, I, I think you know that's something that conservationists deal with on a daily basis. Like, okay, I'm trying to save this coral species, um, but uh, but the oceans are warming, and then it, then my species will die. You know, will have to migrate elsewhere because the waters are too warm here. So this is constantly the tensions that I think. Uh, is what makes conservation work so important and so important to focus on these days and to highlight to the to people who are not 
necessarily as involved in those daily decisions, the importance of those decisions being made so that perhaps the public might participate more in those decisions. That sounds like a whole other fascinating program. Yurus Braverman, thank you so much. It was a pleasure, Sasha. Thank you so much for having me and hosting me. Yurus Braverman is author of Settling Nature, The Conservation Regime in Palestine-Israel. That's a book from University of Minnesota Press at againstthegrain.org. You can find a link to it. Her other books include Planted Flags, Trees, Land, and Law, Coral Whisperers, Scientists on the Brink, and Zooland. You've been listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune in again next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. Please visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio and a way to sign up for our podcast. And you can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio or follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. Radio Against.